Hi everyone, I'm Burns Hargis, and welcome to the Inside OSU podcast. This week's podcast explores the complicated relationship between the United States and Russia. To give us some insight, we talked with OSU alumnus Glenn Howard, who is the president of the Jamestown Foundation in Washington, D.C. In our conversation, we talk about Putin and Trump and the 2016 elections. Glenn also has a fascinating description of what Russia was like back in the 1980s when he lived there. Here's our conversation with Glenn Howard. Let's start a little bit with your background. You grew up in Okmulgee. That's right, Okmulgee, Oklahoma. And then came to OSU. Yep, I came here and studied business and then found an interest with a dynamic professor teaching in your language program and got me excited about Russia. Is that right? Yeah. Were you, ta- you were taking Russian? I started taking Russian, and uh, he said, my goal is to train you so that we can drop you behind in a parachute into the Soviet Union, and no one will find and be able to detect <laughs> that you're an American. <laughs> so that sold me on it the, the day that I started taking it. How and, long did it take you to get to that level of fluency? Uh, a year and a half, and then they steered us through uh, intensive Russian language programs in Indiana University, and then I qualified for an exchange program, and I went there for four months and ended up staying two years. Wow. Uh, you doing over there? Well, I worked as a part-time uh, employee at the U.S. Embassy. Uh, I was working also uh, at that time in the Soviet Union. You couldn't just go there and live. You had to have some type of official sponsorship, and so uh, I found this through the embassy and, and was able to stay there and travel a lot and walk the streets of Moscow and learn what it was like, you know, in the Soviet Union, which was uh, it was a fascinating. What, what years was it? That was in 1984 to 86. So that was before Glasnost and that's all before that. That's right. That was a crucial time when they were shifting. uh, Something new was starting to emerge, and uh, it was uh, the tail end of the Cold War. And uh, it was a very exciting and interesting time. What What was it like? Just life in in Russia then. Well, it's it wasn't the image that was portrayed in the West. I mean, in other words, there was an image that the government was trying to portray to people that that free medical care and and that people were taken care of and. I think the the immense poverty um, and, and the the lower it, it was just shocking to me. I mean, things that you know where you're wanting to get basic basic food like eggs and bread uh, and things like that, which were easily available, but that was about it. I remember one time I gave a a, a Russian friend a, a, a pineapple, and uh, and they'd never seen a pineapple before. And so those little small things were, were shocking. And, and, you know, the Russian people are very warm, very friendly, uh, but they're also very suspicious of foreigners. So uh, that was a thing for me that was really eye-opening. And, and it's, it reflects the importance of trying to understand languages and culture uh, to be able to communicate and understand their perspective. Because if we can't understand their perspective, uh, then we will have problems in misreading their intentions. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, uh, whether you're right or left, you know, everybody agrees, kind of agrees with that view. And I think Reagan showed that, you know, he could go to Reykjavik and meet with Gorbachev and, and, and went against his advisors. Um, but again, the, you know, his, his approach was peace through strength. But, but I think that the United States now, you know, when I was in Moscow, it was just a very different eye-opening experience. And I, I was able to travel around the, the country quite a bit and it was a very interesting uh, to see the different the, the countries that are now free and independent, like Ukraine uh, and the Baltic states. I went to those areas, and it's shocking now for me to see the the vast difference in what they were then and what they are now, uh, and that their their aspirations for their own independence. You know, 
uh, to be free of Russian rule. And so, uh, and I think Russia has to adjust itself and, 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 and uh, change its behavior as a nation, as a country, in terms of how it deals with the West and its own citizens. But it was strictly at that time in the 80s was the most fascinating. And I highly recommend the show, TV show, The Americans, because I've been very impressed with uh, how real that show I'm, is. I'm an I'm avid, sure, yeah. avid viewer. So, we're, in yeah, the, uh, we're all sad to see it go. We're, but. I know. I, I'm just in the sixth season. And we're, oh, okay. We're, <laughs> and we're, uh, so don't tell me what happens. Yeah, okay. But, uh, but I, they're just now going into yeah. it. You know, Gorbachev's nuts. He's going over to the... But I think stuff. that, you know, I think that, that when you look at that show and how they use certain sets and things from the Soviet period, it's strikingly real for me. Yeah. I, I, I was, it brought back so many memories for me. Yeah. And, uh, and it's pretty, pretty true to history, and, and well, you do get their perspective. That, that's true. And I, I don't want this to be a totally negative conversation about Russia and how I view it, because I think Russia has adjusted and, and, and now economically... Uh, they can get many of these goods from the West. I mean, they're importing Norwegian salmon, you know, and, uh, and, and American chickens in the Far East uh, are being brought in. So there's a lot of things the way that have changed Russia in terms of how they supply, how their, their style of living has vastly improved over the Soviet period. You've been in Washington for many years. That's right. I've been, uh, I've been in Washington since about 1999. I've been president of the Jamestown Foundation for over 16 years. So starting in 2003, I became the president. And, uh, and so uh, really enjoy the job. And, and, um, well, tell, tell us about the Jamestown Foundation. How are you? How well, the Jamestown you, Foundation uh, was funded. Well, we, we're funded by private donors. Uh, we have, uh, there are several foundations in the United States that uh, our conservative foundations that, that like the mission and role of what Jamestown does. Uh, at the end of the Cold War, uh, there was uh, a great demand for information, and when the Soviet Union uh, basically kind of fell apart, uh, Jamestown had to kind of reinvent it ourselves. So what we, uh, what we established our name and reputation for was uh, working with defectors. So many of the, the well-known Soviet defectors that came to the West, we helped them write their memoirs. So when the Cold War ended, we shifted over to becoming more information-oriented, uh, and now we publish uh, uh, information on our website about terrorism, about so Russia uh, and uh, China. So we kind of cover some of the major threat areas that, that are uh, of concern of U.S. national security. Do, you, do people buy your research? Or no, it's free you? of charge. Yeah. Uh, so all our publications are free of charge. We have uh, a certain board members. Frank Keating used to be a board member, former governor of Oklahoma. Uh, which we're very proud to have, and uh, uh, and so our board, uh, so we have a certain percentage of our revenue comes from board members paying contributions, uh, and others is from uh, basic fundraising and drives that we do to raise money, and uh, and the other come from foundations. So we don't accept any U.S. government funding, so we're we're very uh, free and independent and can speak our minds. Well, this must be the salad days for you with uh, with all the. Uh uh, issues with Russia and interference with elections and Syria and, and yeah. all the rest. Well, it, certainly, it, uh, as they say, Putin is good for business. So, yeah. uh, so that that's really helpful to what we're doing uh, in terms of the in, the level of degree of interest. And in, and in, and we publish daily information about Russia uh, and the the regions adjoining Russia uh, called the former Soviet Union. And so we're unique in that regard that, that we provide this information. Uh, and we, it is free of charge, but we have about 15,000 uh, subscribers all over the world, people in the U.S. government, other governments uh, subscribe to it, and even the Russian government uh, uh, reads it and sometimes doesn't like it. And we've actually been, they've posted two demarches 
uh, diplomatic notes of protest about the, our activities, and we've actually been uh, knocked off the internet a couple times because of uh, our, you know, the Russians didn't like us. So we were very much uh, victims of Russian internet hacking and attacks. Uh, the so Jamestown Foundation. Jamestown Foundation was. I mean, we've had several times we've been attacked, and uh, uh, so we've been. Uh, we're very much in their gun side, so to speak, uh, and so we. Do you do you, uh, do you know whether the uh, the hacking is by the Russian government or by uh, operatives? Or? Well, we uh, the in the cases where this happens, they they call in the FBI, and the FBI does an investigation, and they were able to determine that the the attacks on our website were uh, came. Uh, from uh, very insecuritous routes uh, through other parts of the world, uh, but were traced back to Russia. And it's also the Chinese as well, uh, also a little bit unhappy about some, because uh, we have a very well-known publication on China. So, well, that, then you'd have a p particular insight into um, this alleged Russian hacking of the U.S. electoral system. I would say yes. I mean, we were we were we weren't surprised. Yeah. Uh, so this was something that we had uh, been been tracking and monitoring for quite a long time, uh, for several years. Uh, and and we even before this happened, we we ourselves were attacked. So this was nothing new. Uh, but I think that what surprised so many people was the the, the range and extent of the of the attacks. And uh, even now, with the most recent elections in the U.S., there's been uh, the level recently was an, it was unprecedented even before it, it, it surpasses the previous level. So you wonder if they you wonder if they're involved in the Broward County uh, stuff <laughs> down in Florida, or maybe Florida. Well, I, I wouldn't go that far, but uh, I, I certainly you know there is a trace, and I think that what that underscores is that you know uh, we packed up and went home after the Cold War, and uh, and I think that they kept focusing on their capabilities and improving them uh, and still want to be uh, a, a rival to the United States, uh, even though we don't really consider it that way. And some people consider Russia to be a pale shadow of its former self, but it's not the Soviet Union. They're not 10 feet tall. Uh, but they are very aggressive and they certainly want to push hard in some areas that uh, affect our national security, and certainly many Democrats in Congress are uh, outraged by it. Um, and so I think that there's a great, a great level of attention. But you know, uh, they're because they've been focusing on modernizing and doing some things with their military and also with their internet security. I think that um, Russia is a very determined power to try to fill some of the regional security vacuums, and especially the vacuum that was left in Syria. They were very determined to fill that. So this has led to, you know, certainly a re, re, uh, recalculation by the United States of what the threat posed by Russia to the United States is, and no one's suggesting that we're going to go to war with them tomorrow. But I certainly, it's a much elevated uh, threat uh, threat risk than we are yeah. used to seeing. Well, it's it's a it's an interesting kind of diplomatic dance going on for a casual yeah. remote observer like uh, like I, uh, because on the one hand. President Trump seems to have a, some kind of a rapport with Putin, uh, and uh, and yet sanctions have been assessed, although I'm told not as many as actually yeah. could be legally. Uh, and uh, and you've got the problems in Syria, and you got the problems in Turkey and in Yemen, and and it, uh, it it's we just look a little schizophrenic in our 
in our uh, policy. Well, certainly it's not coherent in many ways uh, because I think the uh, I think the United States is now trying to focus on the 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 economics of national security, and I think that by focusing more at home uh, and rebuilding the United States, I think that has led to kind of a, a the, the level of attention is not as high, uh, but it's certainly it's important because you can't be strong militarily if you're not strong at home economically. So, uh, so it's a certainly difference in thinking. What, uh, what is the situ the economic situation in Russia? I mean, if you well, they take the oil sales out. That's true. There's not much there, is it? Well, uh, no. There's very rich in natural resources. You know, some mm -hmm. of the richest in the world, but it's also Anytime you look at the map, I mean, Russia occupies a very vast space of all the way from the uh, from the Euro European parts of, of the Baltic and the Arctic all the way to to, to China and the Pacific. So, uh, and its very uh, population is having some uh, severe demographic problems. The population is dying, getting older, not replenishing. So, uh, but there's still this level of resilience in the way the Russians' outlook on the world. Uh, but they don't have their own Silicon Valley. And so uh, militarily, when you can't produce enough missiles uh, or certainly uh, cruise missiles that don't have the sophisticated technology in it, that's going to affect your ability to be continue to be uh, a, a major power, which is what they're striving for. Uh, I wouldn't say they're there yet. but And that's part of the problem what the United States is trying to deal with in Europe. Uh, at the height of the Cold War, we had 360,000 men in Germany. Now we have 50,000 men for all of Europe, uh, and so it's a vast difference from what it used to be. Yeah. Um, the, uh, as you'd be far more knowledgeable than I on this, but I kind of understood that the uh, reproachment uh, by uh, Kissinger to China was brought on, or willingness to do accept that was brought up by China, was brought on because of the strength of the Soviet Union and what they were doing. Now it seems, not that Russia is actually kind of partnering up with China against the U.S. Yeah, that's certainly that they're trying to multiply uh, their bargaining power, and by and they do this rhetorically. So they do this often, uh, speaking in a way in in, in trying to show off uh, their their ties to China in a way that to make the United States weary of of you know not wanting to challenge Russia. But I think the United States is. Uh, and I think China too has its own kind of global agenda of things that it's trying to pursue and that, that Russia is just a kind of a casual partner in those efforts and I don't think there's a real deep inner drive for uh, alliance against the United States by the half of the Chinese but I think it does play into how they, they, they look at, at the outside world um, and certainly what Russia wants to manipulate and use that for itself because it's not what it was in the, in, in the 1980s. So, they know that, but there is this complex that Russia has uh, where they have to feel and assert themselves in a way. And I think that U.S. policy uh, made a fundamental mistake by trying to cater to that. Uh, and because when they catered to it, the Russians misinterpret it. Uh, so I think that's, uh, you know, as Reagan said, peace through strength is a very, uh, is the appropriate way to respond and to deal with uh, Putin's Russia. And I would say one thing that, 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 that's interesting is that President Trump, for, for the Russians, when you look at how the Russians look at Trump, uh, they have a hard time figuring him out. And they, a lot of people the, do. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But the, a lot of people look at it and say, well, he, you know, he said all these nice things about him. He's flattering Putin all the time. But 
uh, when it, you know, but when it comes to, to our, you know, our words and deeds, uh, we're not, it's not reflecting that. So they're kind of put off base a little bit by uh, Trump's behavior because they can't figure it out. And in some ways that adds to our uh, benefit because they're more cautious in how they're dealing with the United States because they still retain this hope uh, that Trump will one day uh, strike a deal with them. And, uh, and What would the deal look like? Well, the, the, the center of this is discussion of, of Ukraine and the Russian invasion and annexation of Crimea in, in February of 2014 followed in August. Uh, by their invasion of Donbass, which is a part of eastern Ukraine. So we want the Russians to pull out of eastern Ukraine uh, and retain ter Ukraine's territorial integrity. Uh, and that's where all the negotiations have been. And, and the Russians have just basically, you know, uh, kept repeating the same thing, kept meeting and negotiating, and nothing was ever happening. So no, they're, they're supposedly protecting their Russian... Well, uh, that's what their claim is. And, yeah. so, and so Europe uh, initiated sanctions against Russia over this. And so... Uh, that's kind of where we are. But, you know, Putin is, is more of a person of the 19th century. Uh, you, know, what he, you know, what he reflects is more of this idea of a status uh, for Russia as a great power. And, but at the same time, he knows Russia doesn't have the capabilities of what it used to have. And so, therefore, it, he's, it's kind of, uh, he's, uh, his weaknesses, he knows he has weaknesses. And the part of the problem is the West always kind of caters to that, you know, to his, um, to our concerns, uh, the view, let's not start World War III with Putin and we got to get along and get to know him. But at the same time, he's uh, taking bits and pieces of Ukraine and uh, there's been over three wars fought in the region uh, so since he's come to power. And, and I think that this is, uh, uh, there's a drive and determination that you haven't seen uh, by a European leader since Bismarck, and I, and I, and on one hand, I, uh, I very much dread and fearful of Putin, but the other, on the other hand, I very much respect him uh, as a leader on the global stage of someone that's trying to get what he wants for Russia. But the problem is, is that there's others getting in the way, and we all remember the tragedy of Poland in the 1930s when he fell to Hitler and Stalin. Uh, so there's countries that border Russia that are very much. Uh, um, susceptible to influence. When, when we think, though, about uh, diplomacy and, and uh, you get into the mutual benefit uh, kind of analysis of econ econ economics, I mean, so we're, we're really there with China. We really can't live very well without them, and we can live with them in many respects, and they're yeah. the same with us. And so it would be a, a real shoot-yourself-in-the-foot event for either of us to take unusually strong measures against China. Well, the, or, the, the view in, in, the, in the Department of Defense and the view of many American defense policymakers is that China doesn't really pose an immediate threat to the United States militarily, the, the one, but whereas Russia does. But the long-term threat to the United States militarily and security is China, and it's obvious through its economic strength and wealth accumulation. But Russia in the near term is, is a power that's what they call an irredentist power that's determined to redraw borders according to its, mm -hmm. its whims. So this is kind of the problem that we're falling into, that, that how the United States deals with this uh, at a time. Because we really don't have any economic uh, interests in, in Russia particularly like we do well, in China. Well, we do with the Arctic and, and the natural gas and the energy yeah. development. Certainly we do there. And, um, and obviously there's a lot of McDonald's in, uh, in, <laughs> in Russia and they're enjoying and actually expanding as well. Um, so the, the problem is at the end of the Cold War, 
kind of redrew how we wanted to think about the world. And we started talking about these really nice terms like soft power and, uh, and we can influence countries by sanctioning them. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, we always see the sanctions never really work. Uh, and only, and only the, the, the low-level people are the people that are hurt by this, whereas the rich and the people, the Saddam Husseins of the world, never, never had to suffer. So, uh, so we had this kind of mindset because we were the last remaining superpower, and we kept thinking that we could bend people to our will. Uh, and I think that there's, it's, in people like Putin and others, uh, I think that, you know, it was determined that, that, that the world would not go according to the U.S. whims and what we were wanting. And so I think that this is, um, we need to kind of readjust our own mindset to this. Uh, what, do, what, do, what does the Jamestown Foundation recommend our policy? Well, be? I, I certainly, uh, I think w we uh, like to be neutral and we're, we're nonpartisan. So we have uh, Dems and Republicans on our board. Uh, we are conservative, but we do have a conservative outlook and we've, you know, definitely have been talking about the threat posed by Russia for quite a while. We, we, we don't provide opinion. So what separates others in Washington is Jamestown likes to provide you with the facts. So we're reporting with data and figures and things that, that make people uh, want to learn. It's, it's educated information, not, not dealing with opinion. Because everybody has an opinion, but there's very little facts. So we feel that we fill this niche in Washington. And we provide that to people. And uh, so we don't really have an opinion about... Uh, we don't form policy papers and say you should do X, Y, and Z. But in my own um, existence as working as president of Jamestown, uh, I think the, the perspectives that we have is that there's certainly when you leave uh, certain portions of territory around Russia and not say that you're willing to defend them, uh, then that, that's an open, that's like putting a bullseye on those countries. So there has to be a certain level of U.S. deterrence and this is a phrase that they lost since the end of the Cold War. We haven't started using that word, but this administration has started using that word. And, and I think that's the proper term is deterrence, uh, to build up and militarily let the Russians know that we won't let them walk over these countries uh, and that we're willing to help them. So what should we have done when, uh, uh, well, when this uh, Shripal? Oh, Skripal, yeah. Skripal was po and his daughter uh, Yuri were poisoned. Well, uh, what should we have done? Well, I certainly you're not going to go the to sanctions don't work. Well, uh, certainly you're not going to go to war over this, you know. But uh, this has been a threat to the British intelligence services. They've killed several Russian agents, uh, people that have defected to them. And and when a person comes and defects to your country, you want and you're giving them that other country your secrets. Uh, you want to know that when the minute you walk out to your car or go home, that you're not going to be knocked off. And so what this signified was a war that, that Putin is waging on the home turf of the British intelligence services. And he's waging this war as a way to send a signal to other defectors, do not defect your mother and do not betray your motherland because if you do, we're coming after you. So the larger context for this is really the signals that it's sending and how the Brits are going to respond to this is going to be a challenge because they haven't done that to the Americans. Um, and I don't think they have the capabilities to, but in Britain, there's a lot of Russians have immigrated and moved there. It's much harder for them, uh, for the British intelligence services to protect people. Uh, and it's a real challenge for them. And I don't know what the real answer is to that. I think that uh, the level of retributions of kicking diplomats out 
you know that 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 doesn't that yeah, doesn't do anything for Putin. just eyewash. No, yeah. no, I you know, and in, in, in the Cold War, the the rule was you take out one of ours, we'll take out one of yours, and they haven't resorted back to that tit for tat. Um, but at some point, you know, this is like the third poisoning uh, in in Britain. At some point, this is going to lead uh, to some type of retribution by the Brits, and uh, and so it, it's a very serious challenge. Now, do you have other issues that you're tracking across the world? Yeah, we are. We uh, we track. Uh, we're all following. Uh, ironically, we're following issues like uh, in Africa and North Africa. We're following uh, some of the. Uh, terrorism issues related to the uh, Islamic State that was in Syria and Iraq. Uh, so we very much closely follow on Al-Qaeda. Jamestown was one of the first uh, nonprofit organizations in Washington two years after 9-11 to create a publication dedicated to, to, to analyzing Al-Qaeda. And ironically, two years after 9-11, there was nothing in existence in terms of a, a publication that dealt with Al-Qaeda and Bin Laden. And I'll mm -hmm. tell you, here's something else you could take home to, to your wife, tell your wife tonight, that Jamestown made up 40% of, of all Bin Laden's library where Jamestown books and publications were from Jamestown. Wow. So 40% of Bin Laden's reading shelf came from us. And so this is an official declassified study uh, information that came from uh, the U.S. government. They did an analysis of everything they found when they raided his compound. So we're quite proud about that. Uh, that, that Bin Laden, the things that we're putting out was it being out there in red. So, uh, and that's because we the many of our much of our analysis was by people who speak Arabic. Yeah. So, you're here for the global briefing series, so you'll be briefing our students. Uh, yeah. Tonight, and uh, what can you give us a synopsis of your message? Well, um, the synopsis there's two two aspects. One is to talk about Russia and and and, and impress people, make them think I know everything in the world, what's going on. <laughs> Uh, but uh, the other part is um, is um, is growing up in Oklahoma and uh, and striving to go on and do something else. Mm. And the important part is to know that you can make a difference, and you can go from Oklahoma State University to Washington D.C. and 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 through hard work. And networking and and just learning something like a language and commanding and mastering it and making a difference and setting yourself apart from that and and that shows that anybody can do it yeah and that that's well, going to be part of my message tonight the other part is is you know don't let people from the East Coast tell you that you can't make it in Washington we're proud of all Glenn has accomplished in Washington as we mentioned, he was here as part of our Global Briefing Series, which is sponsored by our School of Global Studies and Partnerships. The series started after 9-11 for the purpose of educating the public about developing events in the U.S. and abroad. You can watch Glenn's Global Briefing Series presentation on O-State TV. Just go to ostate.tv and enter Glenn Howard in the search. And that's this week's Inside OSU podcast. We'll be back again next week. For now, I'm Burns Hargis, and thanks for listening.